I want to thank these guys. Many of these guys are going to be back here for 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. concert duty, so they're pulling a double uh, shift today. So thank you guys. <clears throat> and maybe if you haven't been around Grace very long, that was an unfamiliar uh, song to you. But uh, years ago, we did a, a Grace Christmas album here, and uh, Walt took the lyrics for Angels from the Realms of Glory and wrote that melody. And I don't know how you feel about when we take, you know, songs that you know, and then we write new melodies to those. And sometimes maybe you think, why don't you just sing the one that I know? This is one of those ones. I love this tune. In fact, it just, this is my opinion. You can argue with me later. I think I like this one better than the original. Uh, so I love singing Gloria. If you do, you can actually go find that old uh, Christmas album, So Much Joy, on our website. I didn't, it's not a plug. You can go listen to it for free. But Anyway, I love that song. But this morning, as I was thinking about the line, the simple line in the chorus, God has come to earth below. God has come to earth. Something about saying the word earth and not just world, it it makes it all the more physical and real. He came to this planet below. I was thinking about, any of you been following the last few weeks, we landed another, like, uh, robot on the surface of Mars, the InSight lander. Any of you guys, if you didn't know that, a few weeks ago we actually landed this thing, another thing. It's not intended to roll around. It's going to stay put and take all kinds of samples. But, but they've been showing these images again of, again, the, 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 the surface of the planet Mars. And, and, uh, and this last week there was this link I saw that said they recorded audio of wind blowing on Mars. I'm like, oh, how cool. I listened to it about three times, and it sounds kind of like wind here, but quieter <laughs> and more staticky. <clears throat> but still, though, even as boring as it was, I'm listening like, we have something that's on the surface of Mars, and it's, and it's in this place that no human being has ever been. It's like literally there on the surface, and we're get, just amazing to me. But we should be infinitely more amazed. God has come to earth below. Jesus walked with his feet on our planet in Jerusalem, in Nazareth. And like we just sang in that last verse, he will return and stand on this earth again and rule as king. This is what we're remembering and celebrating in Advent. God came to earth below and he's coming again. Just amazing. Well, this last week or about a week and a half ago, we had our Christmas party for our, all of our Grace staff and our elder team. Uh, it was quite a big crew. And uh, Randy tasked Sarah Kelly with uh, providing some fun for us, and it came in the form of Christmas Family Feud. We played uh, Christmas Family Feud. She found it online. It was obviously not made by a Christian organization because most of it was very secular, sort of Christmassy answers. But we had fun. Um, but one of the questions I wanted to throw out here was this. You remember how Family Feud works? 100 people surveyed, top whatever questions on the board. Here's the question. And, and one of the questions was, name something that you would commonly see on the cover of a Christmas card. There were six answers. I want to see how well you guys do here real quick. Anyone want to just shout out? What do you think the top six things? That, a Christmas tree. Let me see. You were number two. Anyone can beat? If you can beat her, you can steal. Huh? Santa Claus is number one. Randy, Dana, very good. Santa, Christmas tree. What else? Snow. snow. I'll give you snowman. Snow in the form of a man. <laughs> That's right. Nativity, you said. Yes, it actually made the list. Is the actual thing for which we celebrate Christmas. Uh, all right, you got four out of six there. Oh, wait, wait. Snow is one and snowman is one. So I'm sorry. Actually, snow and snowman. So you only got one left. Huh? Angel, no. Think about these days. What's on almost every Christmas card on your fridge? Family pictures. That's right. All right, so you got all six. Those were the top things. Um, 
<clears throat> All right, I noticed that not one of you said tax collectors. <laughs> Did one of you say tax collectors? I just didn't hear it. Be honest. No, okay. All right, I know that's a lame joke, but uh, I want this morning us to see that tax collectors and Christmas actually have a connection. As we read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Luke, tax collectors have a connection with Christmas. Um, uh, Luke, in his Gospel, he loved tax collector stories. He's got more of them than the other Gospels. He's got some that the other Gospels don't include. Stories about actual tax collectors, stories Jesus told with tax collectors as the main characters, even the good characters in, his, in the story. They don't show up at the manger, but they're throughout Luke's gospel, which should be strange to us at once, in one sense when we think about who tax collectors were, what they did, and how people thought of them. Given those things, you wouldn't think that they would be a prominent character in the life uh, and, 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 and ministry of Jesus, but they were. Tax collectors in Jesus' day were despised people because these were men who would buy the right from the government of Rome to collect Rome's taxes, but then they were allowed at their tax booth or where, where in their area where they collected to add on fees for themselves. And, and these people got rich off the backs of the poor. In fact, their own countrymen, they would exploit their own people. People hated them. In fact, one source I read said that the Jew, uh, Jewish people would excommunicate tax collectors because they just considered them robbers. They just said their vocation is you're just thieves. They were hated. They were f just scum. I, a couple weeks ago, Betsy and I were driving back from uh, her parents for Thanksgiving, listening to This American Life, uh, an episode of this, the podcast, This American Life. And we listened to this story about this guy, David Diamond, who was one of the uh, most successful uh, telemarketing scammers in Los Angeles history a number of years back, finally got caught and went to jail. But in four years, he made over $2 million scamming people, oftentimes older people, um, out of their life savings and, and having them uh, take all of their investments and all of their life savings and send them to him and the promises that he made. It was just despicable. And they finally caught him by setting up the sting. They had these operatives who would kind of pose as dupes. I can't remember how they got connected, but, um, and they would record these conversations where he's pressuring these people and they got enough evidence finally to to convict him. But one of these that they played some, some of the recordings of was this woman whose name was Marge, and she played this kind, kind of elderly, naive uh, woman who had money, and we listened to some of the audio recordings of this guy just giving the full court press trying to talk her out of everything she owned. And at one point, he's, say, he's saying this. He's kind of desperate because she's saying, I don't know, I don't know. And at one point, he says, here's the thing. You have to invest everything you've got or do nothing at all. He's kind of trying to make her feel like a, a fool for walking away from this great deal. I'll say it again. You should invest everything you have. You should transfer. This is an elderly woman with her life savings here. You should transfer all of your investments into this program or do nothing. It doesn't make sense to do a little bit. You should think about doing a million dollars in this program. And as I was listening... I had to remind myself, this woman's actually an operative and she's getting ready to, you know, you know, catch this guy. But I got so angry listening, imagining that there were real Marges who got 
fleeced for everything that they own uh, and in their, the last season of their life had nothing. And this guy was taking that money and buying like a custom Porsche that he had shipped over from Europe to drive around Hollywood Hills. As I listened, I was just so ticked off at this guy. And I think, I imagine that's something like how people felt about tax collectors. They're, they're you know, kind of living the good life on the backs of the poor, and they were just despised. But in Luke's gospel, they keep popping up in all these surprising places, these sorts of guys. In Luke 3, just as, as before Jesus' ministry begins, John the Baptist is calling people out to the Jordan River to prepare the way f- for the Savior who's about to come and to be baptized in repentance for their sin. And Luke 3, tax collectors are coming out and getting baptized. We get to Luke 7, and Luke include, lets us know not just a few tax collectors. It said many tax collectors came out to be baptized. In fact, many, while the Pharisees stood by, refusing John's baptism. In Luke 5, which is going to be our passage today, Jesus actually calls a tax collector to be one of his 12 closest disciples, to travel with him and to be, to, to be, to be disciples under him. Luke 15, tax collectors and sinners are gathering around Jesus and Pharisees are grumbling about it again. He's eating and dining with them. Luke 18, Jesus ends up telling a room uh, full of people who think that their righteousness is going to be just fine uh, in God's sight. And he tells them a story about a tax collector where this tax collector is the example in the story. Luke 19, short little tax collector who's good at climbing, (laughs) wants to see Jesus, and Jesus surprises him by saying, I actually intend to come to your house and eat with you. I think the reason that Luke loves these tax collector stories is that they all demonstrate and put on display one of the reasons for which Jesus was born, which we're going to read here in Luke 5, if you turn there. After he calls Levi, and Levi comes and follows him, as we're going to see, he makes a purpose statement about why he came. And so this morning, I want to unpack three kind of aspects of this purpose statement that Jesus makes to think about three parts of it that he says. And I'm going to kind of dip into some of these other tax collector stories in Luke to flesh that out. But uh, why don't we read it? Luke 5, uh, starting in verse 27. After this, let me back up here. After this, this is what this is. Jesus has begun his public ministry. Uh, He began calling disciples. He's got at least three, uh, Peter, James, and John, who were fishermen who left everything and followed him. And now he's beginning to to preach and proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand and calling people to repent. And he's healing people. He heals a leper. He heals a paralytic man and also has the audacity to tell this man that he can forgive his sins, that he has authority that only God should have. And so his reputation is beginning to grow who is this man who speaks like him and who does these things? And then we read this, verse 27. Well, after this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Levi made a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors and others, I wonder what other sort of undesirables were part of the crowd, and they're all reclining at table with them. An intimate meal, they're all reclining, eating together, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? 
In other words, he says to the, they say it to the disciples, why are you hitching your wagon with this guy, this teacher? And Jesus answered them. He steps in. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So that's just the purpose statement. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come, in other words, uh, uh, to call sinners to repentance. Jesus says, I was born to do what's happening right here in this scene. I came, I came, God came to earth below in part to invite sinners. First point I want to make is Jesus came calling sinners. We'll move on to the repentance part in a minute, but just in the first place, Jesus came, God became a man to personally, physically come inviting and calling sinners which shouldn't surprise us because from cover to cover in the Bible, that's what we see God doing. Isn't that all the way back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sin against God? They don't come running to God and apologize. They're hiding from God and God comes and seeks them out. Where are you, Adam? And though there is a curse and there are consequences, there's also a promise, isn't there? And hope. It's not going to remain this way. The, the tempter's not going to go on tempting forever. I will crush his head one day, and through you, I'm going to bring a, a restoration for what sin has broken. Then we come to Abraham, and again, we see God going out after and calling and inviting sinners. Abraham was just an idol worshiper, a pagan out in the land of Ur, and God comes to him and says, come with me. Leave that behind. Leave your idols. Come with me. I'll be your God. I have a promise for you and for the world through you. And then it passes down. He comes inviting Isaac to be part of this and then Jacob to be part of this and then Moses to be part of this and then the nation of Israel to be part of this. He comes to Israel and says, put away your idols. Walk in my statutes, he says at Sinai. Be my people for my possession and I will be your God. And they weren't good at that. So for generation after generation, God continued to send prophets inviting, pleading, calling them back Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, God would say, go to my people and say, tell my people, cry out to my people. And it was always, come back to me. Leave your idols, come back to me. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 34, Jonathan, if you could put that up, God finally promised this after all these people that God sent calling and inviting sinners. He says this, behold, I I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them into their own land. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. I love that. Again, I myself, I myself, four times, I will seek them out. So when Jesus comes in his ministry, he says, and like Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We might rush past the seek part to the good part to save the lost, but the first part's the good part too. 
It's why Jesus became a man so that God could personally, physically present, come and seek out the lost. Why? Because none of us were seeking him out. God finally comes in the flesh. It shows us God's initiative. It shows that in his love and compassion, he's unwilling to allow us to remain in gloom and darkness, but he wants to come inviting us out of that darkness into his light. He doesn't want us to miss what he has for us. He so doesn't want us to miss what he has for us that he finally comes in person. Christmas is a reminder of how far God's gone to call us. You know, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 confirms this. It says this. It says that long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to us, uh, to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Christmas reminds us God became a man. He was born as a baby so that he could grow up and learn to speak so that he could invite us back to himself with his own voice. Isn't that amazing to think about during the years of Jesus' earthly ministry, people were literally hearing God inviting them audibly with a human voice to leave their sin and come to him. That's why Jesus came. And this one small scene with Levi here in chapter five of Luke is just a snapshot of what Jesus said, this is what I've come to do. I've come to call sinners. I have more sinners to call than just this one. Notice where Levi is when the scene starts. It says, here's this tax collector, Levi. He's sitting at his tax booth. That's the only thing it says. It doesn't say he's sitting there rethinking all of his vocational choices in life feeling the emptiness of this sort of dead end, this job and feeling guilty about it. No, probably he's just enjoying another day of getting rich off of poor people. He's just collecting, another day of collecting taxes. It's like Jesus shows up while David Diamond's on the phone with Marge and says, hey, hold, hold a second. Come with me to this guy, this tax collector. And then at the feast he throws for him, he says, this is why I came. I came to call people like this guy. People came to call people like David Diamond to come with me. And not a, he doesn't come up to Levi and say, come with me. <laughs> like a cop busting him, right? Taking him, hauling off to jail. He comes like, like a judge, comes and unlocks the prison door and says, come with me. C leave this, come with me. The incarnation was a search and rescue mission. It's Jesus come, coming to search out and then rescue and Jesus is still calling. He's not doing it through his physically present body, which is gonna return one day and every eye will see, but he's doing it through his church by his Holy Spirit around the world. He's using us to implore other people on behalf of Christ to, to call sinners on his behalf. And this morning, I believe God is calling you. Through Jesus' words here, he is calling you to leave your sin and to follow him. Some of you uh, this morning, uh, he is calling. You are, you're sitting in your own tax booth and he's saying, I want you to leave that. I want you to follow me. And I say, well, I'm, not a ta I'm not a tax collector. <laughs> That's just insulting. But the Bible says in Romans 3 that all have sinned. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God and there are none righteous, no, not one. So that, that means every one of us are sitting in a tax booth of one form or another. There's lots of ways to fall short of the glory of God. 
maybe your way of falling short of the glory of God looks quite respectable. But in your heart, ultimately, it's an ignoring God in the world he made as a person he made with purposes to know him and enjoy him and to live under his, his good, loving authority. And you have other plans. And they might not look like Levi getting poor off the backs of, uh, or getting rich off the backs of the poor, but nevertheless, it's an affront to God and you fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus is calling you this morning as a sinner. So then the question is calling you to what? Well, point number two, Jesus came, he says, to call sinners to repentance. To repentance, that's what he came. That was the invitation, repent. At the very beginning of Mark's gospel, um, that's the first thing that says that he went out proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. That was the, the, the lead invitation of Jesus. This is what happened here with Levi. He doesn't use those exact words here with Levi. Notice he says, follow me. But this is what Levi does. He repents. It says, leaving everything, he rose and followed him and then had a huge party, invited all of his tax collector colleagues to come meet this Jesus. Real repentance is leaving sin behind and following Jesus. And what I love about the way that Jesus calls this sinner here is it helps us understand the call to repent, I think, with with a different tone. Maybe you don't like that word repent because it sounds browbeating and it sounds scolding and finger wagging and shaming and repent, you know? It's like the church lady back on, you know, Saturday Night Live, Dana Carvey, sinners, you know, repent. It's just to stop doing bad stuff. And it does mean stop doing bad stuff. It is a call to leave sin. But look at this here. It has a very different tone. Jesus says what he's doing with Levi is calling a sinner to repentance, but he does it by saying, follow me. When Jesus says repent, what he's saying is, I I want you to be with me. You would be better off with me. But here's the thing, you can't have your sin and me. So that's why repentance is part of it. But saying repent is, come follow me, be with me. Leave your sin behind. That might feel very costly, but he's saying, trust me, being with me is better than any cost you leaving your sin uh, will cost you. And Levi does it. I want us to, to, think, to, to think a little bit about then what does this look like to repent, this thing that Jesus is, has come to call sinners to. And I want to flip over to another tax collector story that kind of spells this out for us and kind of puts it in, in vivid color. Turn to Luke 15. <clears throat> in Luke 15, it starts saying, tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes again were grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he ends up telling them three stories. Maybe you're familiar with them, and each story kind of gets a little bit more amazing. The first one is about a woman who loses a coin in her house, and she sweeps the whole house and finds it, and she has great joy over finding this one insignificant little lost coin. The next story gets a little more serious. It's not just a coin, it's a living thing. It's a sheep that wanders off and the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes out searching for this one lost sheep and rejoices when he finds it. And then it gets even more personal and not just an animal, it's about a human being, a son. 
and he goes to his dad and he demands his inheritance and says, I want nothing to do with you. I just want your stuff. And he leaves his dad, goes far off where he can spend it out of the sight of his dad, out of his dad's control and authority, and he spends it all. And he finally comes to nothing and he hits rock bottom. And I want to zoom in right here in the story. Because starting at verse 17, if we watch this son and how in Jesus' story this son talks and responds, we learn this is what Jesus is calling us to. This is what repentance looks like. Let's just sort of take his, uh, this, this son's thinking phrase by phrase. Verse 17, it starts here. But when he came to himself, that's where repentance starts. Because in our sin and in our call, calling the own shots, the pride of sin, we, think we're, we don't think we're fools. We think we know better than God. And we know exactly what's going to make me happiest and most content and fulfill and how to navigate this life. But here it shows this is what real repentance is. Coming to himself, realizing, no, I've actually been a fool. What I thought was a great idea, now I realize I've made a huge mistake. That's where repentance begins, acknowledging the foolishness of sin. I'm rejecting the blessing of living with my loving dad under his, in his home, part of his family, for this. And then it moves on. He says, and I perish here with hunger. He, he acknowledges the seriousness of his situation, that the cho- choice I've made is leading to death. Real repentance involves that, us admitting that the course that we would choose for our life is going to end in death. It might not feel that way initially. It might be quite enjoyable along the way, but finally acknowledging that it leads to death. And then what does he say? Verse 18. He says, well, I will arise and go to my father. An idea strikes him. I got, I got one option left. And notice how repentance has both leaving the pig trough, but also going to the father. That's what he says. I will arise and go to my father. I'll leave this slop and I'll go back to my father. And repentance involves both, not just leaving sin and stopping doing wrong things, but it's personal. It's returning, the heart returning back to God as our father. And then imagine, here's what he imagines he's going to say when he gets there. He says, I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against you. I love how his repentance is not just, I've broken broken some of that list of rules in a book. It's very personal. I've sinned, Father, against you. And the repentance that Jesus calls us to is personal, is to come acknowledge to God, God, against you and you alone, I have sinned and done what's uh, unworthy in your sight. It's saying to God, I'm guilty, I know it. I rightly stand condemned. And finally he says, I'm gonna tell my dad I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Repentance is admitting your complete bankruptcy, that you've got no leverage here in, in repentance. You are banking everything on the mercy of the Father to receive you even though you've got nothing in, in return to show for it other than need. That's what the son imagines. And he finds the father receiving him just the same way that Jesus ends up telling us that we can expect God to receive us back when we repent. This is what Jesus came calling us to do. But here's the problem is none of us would do this, will do this until we acknowledge everything that this son had to acknowledge, that we've been foolish, 
that our sin is serious, that we're guilty, that we're unworthy, that we don't have anything to offer God in return. But here's the thing, as awful as it might sound to you to admit all those things about yourself, if you do, you are exactly who Jesus came calling. That's who he wants with him. That's sort of the, the entry requirements into relationship with God again through Jesus is to admit all these things. He came calling sinners to repentance. Doesn't matter. Uh, later, if you turn back to Luke 5, he says in, in, the, in front of these Pharisees, you know, he, he uses analogy when he makes his, uh, his purpose statement. He says, uh, well, people don't need a doctor, just those who are sick. So repentance is admitting you're sick. But if you do, doesn't matter how sick, doesn't matter how long you've been sick, Jesus can heal that. Heal you. Which leads to the last part of Jesus' statement that I want to come back to in verse 32. This is my third point. This might be a hard point. He didn't come to call the righteous to repentance. It sounds a little harsh for Jesus to say, there are some people I didn't come calling. What exactly does he mean by this? Well, he's not saying there are some who are righteous. There are some who are well, they don't need a doctor, and I didn't come call for them because they're just fine. But those who do, that's who I came for. That's not his point. In fact, we know that's not his point. The way he talks about the Pharisees uh, frequently in the Gospels, he sort of pulls the veil back on their bright, shiny, you know, clean exteriors and says, really, that's just surface. And that their hearts are far from God, many of them, and they're sort of like a, a nice, clean cup on the outside that's filthy on the inside, or a beautifully, freshly painted tomb that is filled with dead people's bones. So Jesus can't be saying that, you know, listen, this doesn't apply to some of you Pharisees here, just the tax collectors. What he's saying is there are some who think that they're well and think that they're righteous and see no need to repent. Maybe if you're completely honest, that's how you feel. You're not one of those. Come on. Jesus certainly must see how different I am from those, whoever your those are. Well, Jesus had a tax collector story for you, too. <laughs> Turn to Luke 18 real quick. In fact, we know that this story is for you, if that's how you think, because Luke tells us right up front, Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. I'm not sick. And treated others with contempt. They are. Here's his story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see yourself in that Pharisee? Do you have your own list? Maybe it's not his list, but your list of what separates you from the riffraff and puts you in the well camp, and clearly not in the sick camp. Because Jesus is saying some hard words to you. 
Everyone's in the sick camp. Some just don't acknowledge it and therefore don't hear my call to repent or they dismiss it. In that sense, Jesus didn't come calling you, which is sad. But here's the thing. In another sense, Jesus did come calling you because he did come saying these things to Pharisees, didn't he? He didn't just eat and drink with tax collectors. He ate and drank with Pharisees. He had Nicodemus over one night, late at night, and pled with him for hours, we saw last Sunday. He loved Pharisees too, and he wanted them to come to their senses and realize, oh, I'm sick too. In fact, he even uh, called Paul, who considered himself the Pharisee of Pharisees, and Paul finally heard his call and switched camps. Paul in one of his letters, lists all the things that he used to have, would have said, this is the righteousness by which I will be justified before God. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I beat them all. Listen to how he came to understand himself once Jesus finally called him in a voice he could hear and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And everything changed. Listen to this from 1 Timothy 1. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. No, he doesn't say that. He says, formerly, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, he says. He goes from being a Pharisee of Pharisees to of whom I am the foremost. He goes from being a of whom they are the foremost kind of guy to of whom I am the foremost kind of guy. And everything changes. For some of you this morning, that's what I want you to experience for the first time. Maybe you've considered yourself a Christian, called yourself a Christian. Maybe everyone in your life just assumes you're a Christian. But maybe this morning, you're finally seeing as we look at the Pharisee and we look at the tax collectors, you say, I'm really this Pharisee. All along, I've been assuming that it's really some of what I bring to the table that's gonna seal the deal with God. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not hearing me. This morning, you need to say, no, I'm sick. Jesus, would you forgive me? I bring nothing to the table. For many of us here, I think this should be a word of caution because it, it, it can be our tendency later on as a Christian, as we go on in the Christian life, for the Pharisee sort of mind to creep back in and we begin seeing the world sort of as the, of, uh, as the they, those kind, and then me, uh, the, the kind uh, <coughs> like Paul would, would have said before, of whom they are not worthy. We start feeling like, you know, you know, at the beginning I was pretty needy, but now I've kind of cleaned myself up and I'm, I'm doing, God's kind of lucky to have me. I was trying to think of an illustration for this. It would be a bad illustration, but I don't work out very much, as maybe you can tell. But in fitness centers, I understand, I've used these before, there's a machine designed to help people like me who can't do a pull-up do a pull-up. 
Maybe you've used one of these. It's got this counterweight that comes up from underneath and you rest your knees on it and you can set that weight as high as you want. I mean, I can set it to my full body weight, which is nice. And I get up on there and I just start cranking. I could do a set of 30, like without even breaking a sweat, but I'm not, I'm not actually doing a pull-up at all. I'm fooling myself. But the machine is designed to eventually get you to the point where you keep backing it down, backing it down, and finally you don't need the machine anymore and you can just legitimately do a pull-up. That is not an illustration of the Christian life. If you this morning think, hey, I, I think I've kind of finally reached, I, I don't have to use the machine anymore. I'm good. Thanks, Jesus, for ramping me up to that. You're mistaken. In the very beginning, you weren't doing any of the, carrying any of the weight of atoning for your sin. Jesus was carrying it all. And guess what? Today, he's still carrying it all. You're still doing this, but all the weight's coming up from underneath from Jesus. And the Lord's Supper table that we're about to take is a reminder of that. To this morning, you're still the tax collector. You're still the tax collector Jesus loved and died for. One last thought. Maybe another reason the Lord wants you to hear, think about this this morning is maybe your struggle is that you are both the Pharisee and the tax collector. I, I, I experience this frequently. frequently. I think that that inner voice of self-condemnation that can come is as if my inner Pharisee is wagging its finger at my internal tax collector. And I'm thinking about my own sin at times, and maybe you think about your own sin, and, you th and, and the Pharisee voice inside your own head says, really, you think Jesus wants to eat with you? To welcome you? You're the one saying, I, I can't believe you think that. And the Lord's Supper table reminds us, yes, Jesus does want to dine with me. He invites us this, to this table and to celebrate that his body was given for us and his blood was shed for us. And because of that, our hope is that one day forever we'll be with him and we will feast with him. It's beautiful. So we're about to take the Lord's Supper. If you're going to be one of our servers, if you would come forward now and, and grab these and, and, and find your stations... But as we're about to take it, I just want to say, if you are trusting in Christ this morning alone for the forgiveness of your sin, this celebration is for you. You are invited to come forward and take the bread and dip it in the cup. And the servers will remind you, Christ's body was given for you. Christ's blood was shed for you. And take that right where you're at or take it back to your seat and enjoy that and give thanks. that You're a sinner that God called to repentance. Word of caution, though. If you are aware of sin in your life. There, is, there, are, there are certain sins in your life which you are not willing to walk away from or leave behind. That doesn't mean you're perfect. It just means you're still not willing to, to let go of those things. The Bible would warn you against the hardening of your heart that can happen by clinging to sin and simultaneously coming up and saying, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving all my sin except this. And he would invite you to hear his invitation again this morning. Nothing that you want to cling to is worth clinging to and losing being with Jesus. So let it go and then come forward and celebrate the Lord's Supper. At our closing song after the Lord's Supper, our prayer team will be in similar places right here where uh, our servers are. And they'd love for you to come forward and, and be prayed for uh, this morning. Anything that's on your mind. Uh, let me pray and then we're going to close with this. Lord, Thank you for the, um, the way that Jesus shows us vividly what your heart is toward sinners, that you love us, 
that you gave yourself for us, that you want us to be with you. You want us to be with you. And you do all the work of cleaning us up and making us restored into your perfect image one day. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you're with us in this process. We thank you for the Lord's Supper celebration and how it helps reassure us of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. As an invitation to come forward this morning, I wrote a verse to O Come All Ye Faithful that I think, so can we just sing this? You don't have to stand, but let's sing this together. O come, all ye sinful, stubborn and rebellious. O come, ye, O come, ye to Bethlehem. Come, he is calling, born to seek and save us. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Come when you're ready.